Okay, well, uh, it's probably always been a, a, a dream of mine to be surrounded by thousands of people uh, cheering uh, me on while I'm preaching. It's probably not a good thing that I dream of that, right? That's a, um, but I'll tell you what. Uh, so last night, uh, Amy and I came here to get a, a little work done, and it is a little unsettling uh, if you walk into this auditorium without the lights on and don't expect to see a silhouette um, of people standing on the stage staring at you. Uh, that's a little jarring. Uh, when, when we walked in here, like, oh, there's someone, oh, no, that is a giant up on the stage. Um, but all that to say, man, like Nathaniel said, be praying for tonight. I was, in that last song, I was trying to think of how many years we've been doing sports camps for our community, and I think I counted, this is our 14th year uh, doing sports camps for our community. Uh, every year, we see hundreds of kids come out uh, from our neighborhood. Uh, we're able to just in, uh, in, engage with them, interact with them, and uh, we're not training high-caliber athletes uh, by any stretch of imagination, but it is a way in which we as a church are getting outside these doors and loving our, our neighbors we love ourselves. So please be in prayer over the next four days as we uh, jump into this. All right, well, Psalm 52 is where we are this morning. As we think through the the psalm, specifically this psalm, um, it's a psalm of justice. It's a psalm of justice. Uh, Human beings have this innate desire for justice. Now, we love justice for others. This is maybe a little caveat. We love mercy for ourselves, justice for others, but that's another sermon. This is a psalm on justice, and we love justice. If, if a show on TV isn't about a doctor, it's most likely going to be about a lawyer or a detective, uh, right? Someone seeking justice, trying to uncover wrong to make it right. Uh, Amy and I, we love watching, um, we love watching like crime documentaries. Like we're just like obsessed with them. And, and it seems like Netflix is just continually churning one crime documentary out after another. And why is that? Well, they do so because there's a market for that, right? People love good stories that draw them in with trying to uncover some mystery or to write something that's been wronged, all right? Or, or, or to demand justice on those who have seemingly maybe gotten away with something, right? When we hear of those stories and you're like, man, he's guilty. How's he found innocent, right? Like there's something within us that churns, like that's not right, Now, why do we love to watch or to read stories or listen to podcasts about stories about justice, right? What's the allure? I mean, there's probably multiple reasons why, but maybe one I would give that I think is most pressing and the most um, obvious reason from a a biblical framework is that uh, God is a God of justice. He's a just God, and and we're made um, in his image, Right? And so when we witness injustice as, as image bearers, when we witness unfairness, when we witness the mistreatment of others, there is something that's, that's hardwired within our being that desires then things to be made right. It's an aspect, I believe, of, of being made in his image. And, and because that's, that's reality, because that's so, I think it's difficult for us to, to, to witness or even experience ourselves injustice. Like most likely, many of us uh, in this room here this morning have at one point in our lives, maybe some in here have experienced uh, mistreatment by someone many times in their lives or been wronged by someone, but all of us have probably at most likely one point in our life been wronged or been harmed by someone, and yet oftentimes what takes place is that the offender, the one who caused harm, caused that pain, faces no repercussions at all. They get to live their life as if nothing happened. 
And, and, and you're left carrying the, the weight, the mental, emotional, and the physical wounding of their harm. So how do we, as human beings, then deal with that? Because that's the world in which we live. It's not complete anarchy by any stretch of the imagination, although in some places of the world it certainly is. But God in his grace has instituted systems of governance which are charged with executing justice and, and doing what's right. But again, the, the world is broken. Human beings are flawed. And so that means that no human system of justice no matter how uh, firm it's trying to be built up, is ever going to fully eradicate all evil. Not all wickedness in this world is going to be dealt with in a just way by human beings, right? Not, not all leaders or those that are in authority who are charged with defending the weak, defending the marginalized, are always going to do what's right. So, so again, the question, what do we do when we experience this, when we observe this broken reality in the world in which we live and within ourselves, there's going to be a number of ways in which we respond, right? Some are going to uh, respond with discouragement and diving into despair and, and cynicism, right? A lack of trust in anything or anyone, right? Some will uh, grow angry with God, right? Believing that, that there's no way God is truly just. He's not truly loving, there's no way he must be truly powerful because if he was all those things, then he wouldn't allow human suffering. It's a big objection that many in the world have to the notion of a God. Why is there suffering? But others will just flat out reject the whole notion of God altogether. And we'll actually deal with that next Sunday in Psalm 53. Others, however, will seek justice will speak for those who can't speak for themselves, will give of themselves for the care and the good of, of others. And, and those things are, it's good and that's right and it's biblical provided, as this psalm will guide us, that we first rest um, in this firm belief that, that it is ultimately God who will make things right, right? And, and, and that we are not humanity's savior, Right? If we can first find our footing there, right, in a, in a God of justice who will not allow evil to go unpunished, who, who, in, in a God whose love is steadfast, then, then we can more clearly and most clearly begin to image God's love and justice in a broken world without being driven to despair for when it seems overwhelming. Only when we first find our footing there that those who, who have been hurt those who have been hurt, those who have been on the receiving end of, of injustice can then find rest themselves in the knowledge that, that those who have harmed them have not escaped. They've not escaped. But that God who sees all and knows all will deal with injustice, will deal with wickedness. Nothing will ever be swept under the rug. Everything will all be brought into the light and dealt with in one of two ways that we'll get to at the end this morning. I mean, there's great hope in this psalm for the hurting because this psalm was written by a hurting man who found his hope in a just and a loving God. Now, now, as we dig in this morning to this psalm, it's going to be really helpful for us to, to understand the, the background, uh, what was going on in David's life for why he wrote this, this song, this psalm here. Uh, 
uh, this summer uh, as we journey through the Psalms. Uh, we're going to go through the largest section of Psalms that were actually written during specific um, historical situations in David's, in David's life. So last week, you guys were in Psalm 51. Psalm 51 was written as David's response to being uh, confronted and found out for his sin of, of adultery with Bathsheba. Psalm 52 is, is now taking us back to, to David's life before he was king. He had been anointed, but, but Saul is king. This is David's life now before uh, he is uh, taking the throne and he is on the run because Saul is pursuing him. So, so understanding what's going on here specifically is going to bring more to light what and why he wrote what he wrote. So Psalm 52 was, was written during one of the most trying and, and bitter experiences in, in all of David's life. Uh, th- this moment here is, is captured and written and recorded in 1 Samuel chapters 21 and 22. They record the story of what's going on in David's life. Now, I'm not going to read through those, those chapters, but let me give us just a synopsis of what's happening in those chapters because, like I said, it's going to help us better understand the experience of David, but, but also to understand and see the heart, his heart, in the face of severe injustice and, and evil. So, like I said, David in this moment, he's not king when he wrote Psalm 52. Well, when he wrote this psalm, right? He was not king. Saul is. And Saul begins to to turn and has turned sharply against David. David has been nothing but loyal to Saul. But but Saul is growing in this irrational belief that, that everyone's coming toward David, everyone's exalting David, everyone's surrounding and coming to David, and, and he's being left out. And so he begins to turn sharply against David, seeking to kill him. And so Saul is seeking David's life, which, which forces David to flee Jerusalem. And so as he flees Jerusalem, he comes to the city of, of Nob. And there, as he enters the city, he seeks out uh, the chief priest. It was a man by the name of Ahimelech. So uh, Ahimelech, when he sees David coming all alone, uh, actually says that, that he came to David trembling. He's like, something's off, something's wrong. Because David always comes uh, armed. He always comes with his, his guard. Right? And, and here David is all alone with nothing. And so Ahimelech is, is trembling and, and wondering what is going on. And, and so David, in his response to Ahimelech, is, is actually not truthful. He's semi-dishonest in his response to Ahimelech and tells him, no, Saul has just sent me on a secret mission. Uh, it, was, it was quick. I had to get out. That's why I have no food. I have no weaponry whatsoever with me. I'm going to meet up with my guys later. So he, he, he tells Ahimelech this story that, no, it's not Saul that's pursuing me. I'm on a secret mission. So Ahimelech has no reason to distrust David. And so when David asked him for food and for a a weapon, Ahimelech helps him because this has been the case. Ahimelech has helped him times before. So the chief priest here gives gives him bread from the temple, and he gives him actually Goliath's sword, which was there. And so David goes out with with a full belly of of bread and and carrying Goliath's sword and and, and flees and keeps going to different cities. While while David, though, is there in in Nob with Ahimelech, one of Saul's servants, it's a man by the name of Doeg, he sees David and he sees Ahimelech helping him. So he knows the whole situation. He understands what is going on. He more than likely understood what David had communicated to Ahimelech. He knows the whole scene. Now, this is important for what's about to unfold. Because when we get to chapter 22, for Samuel, this next scene unfolds kind of with Saul. He's on this hillside. He's with his military guard, and he's just kind of sulking. He's just pouting. 
Because he's like, everyone's supporting David. Everyone loves David. No one's coming to me. No one cares that my own son likes David more than me. So he's, he's sulking and pouting with all these guys right there. No one will tell me what David's up to. No one will tell me where he is. Well, Doeg is there. He's there. So time has passed. So Doeg somehow finds himself in Saul's presence. And, and, and as he sees Saul uh, sulking and pouting, he, he, he witnesses his frustration. And, and Doeg sees this as an opportunity to gain status to gain favor with the king, to let his star rise a little bit more. And so Doeg comes to Saul and says, no, I saw, I saw David. David was in Nob. He was with Ahimelech, and Ahimelech helped him, gave him food, and gave him a weapon. Saul, Saul loses it, calls for Ahimelech to come before him, where, where the chief priest stands before Saul, and Saul accuses him of conspiring, conspiring against the king. Remember, again, David had not told him like anything that was going on. Like, did not say, no, Saul's pursuing, he's pursuing me, he's trying to take my life. And, and so Ahimelech replies to, to Saul that, listen, no one has been more loyal to you than David. No one's been more loyal to you. So, so how would I know that, that there was a problem between the two of you and that, and that you were pursuing him? He's always been loyal to you. And he told me nothing of what was going on. And so he's like, I assisted David just as I've done many times before. And so Ahimelech answers boldly and rightly and righteously and without any, uh, any error whatsoever. But Saul hears this and doesn't care, condemns him to death, along with all the, all the priests and all of his family. He orders the guards in that moment to kill this chief priest and to kill his family, but his, Saul's own guards like refuse to do it. Right? We're, not, we're not touching the priests and their family. What are you talking about? And so Saul turns to Doeg, who's there says, you do it. And so, so Doeg rises up, sees another opportunity to gain favor with the king, to see his star rise more and more. And so Doeg kills him and, and 85 others, right? Like he, Doeg massacred an entire family, men, women, even children. There was only one son of Ahimelech that escapes, a man by the name of Abiathar. He escapes this somehow and finds David and tells him, here's what just happened. I've lost everybody. And David takes responsibility, owns for, for what he said and what he brought about and the death of his whole family. And so he welcomes Abiathar into his care. Psalm 52, this is David's response to the evil of Doeg and the events that he caused. It's a specific historical situation. So in this psalm, we're, we're going to see three pictures today. We're going to see a picture of evil. Uh, we're going to see a picture of justice. And we're going to see a picture of eternal hope. Now, we don't have uh, slides for today, so I'll make sure if you're taking notes uh, that you get the, the points down. But uh, three pictures that we're going to look at today. So the first four verses of this psalm show us the first picture, and that is a picture of evil. Right? It's a picture of evil. And so Doeg is, is the person that's in view here in Psalm 52, but his actions reveal what evil is and how evil acts. See, it's one thing to, to define evil as the dictionary does, as a, a profound immorality and a profound wickedness. But, but again, you want to ask, oh, but, but what? Like, what is that? What is evil? What's the essence of evil? And so we actually see it. Uh, described in, in three ways through the actions of Doeg. And, and the first way that we're seeing uh, this picture of evil described in Psalm 52 is, is that of pride. 
that of pride, right? Verse one, why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? Right? He says sarcastically of Doeg. The, the, the picture here in verse one is, is when we hear the word boasting, a lot of times our, in our mind we think of someone kind of strutting around, right? Beating their chest, proclaiming how, how great they are, like, like boasting in their abilities. Look what I have done. But, but that's not really what's in view here. That's not the boasting that, that's taking place here. Doeg is not strutting around saying, look what I have done. There's, there's something actually more sinister than that that's going on in Doeg's heart and something even more evil and more wicked that, that's taking place here. See, the pride in view, the boasting in view here is, is one of self-sufficiency. It's, it's one of superiority over others, that I am so worthy, that I am so magnificent that I will go to any lengths to make sure my greatness, my worth is known, right? It's the pride of self-sufficiency. I don't need anything, anyone. I am the greatest. What's wrong with everyone else in this world? See, oftentimes our, our boasting, right, that strutting around is, is a lot of times like a cover-up for our own insecurities, so things we're insecure about, we kind of boast about the things we're really good at so as to hide those things that we're insecure about. We, we, we speak of what we're good at so we're covering up what we're not. But, but again, that's not the picture here, right? In, in Doeg's heart, in Doeg's mind, there's, there's not really an insecurity here. Rather, it's actually the opposite. Evil is, is pictured in someone here who is satisfied fully within themselves, right? Like true evil. Right, the essence of, of evil is the self-exaltation and satisfaction in man alone. Right? Like in yourself. I want to be like God. I want to be better than God. I want to be, you know what I'm saying? That's the self-exaltation is the essence of evil and what's taking place in Doeg's heart. The, the, the first verse is, is really contrasting the, the foolishness of, of human self-sufficiency with this never-ending steadfast love of, of God, right? Like, like Doeg would rather look internally to himself for, for affirmation, for identity, for, 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 for who he is, rather than submitting to a, a good and loving God, right? That heart attitude is the, the essence of, of, of all human evil. It's the removal and the rejection of a holy God and it is the elevation of sinful man, Right? So, so there's pride that's taking place. That's a picture of evil. But second thing we see is this picture of evil is, is this love for it, right? This love of evil. That's what we see in verse 3, right? David writes that like, you love evil more than good. Like Doeg, Doeg witnessed David's interaction with Ahimelech. He witnessed what was taking place. He witnessed what David had spoken to him. He knew Ahimelech was, was innocent. He knew him like the priest. He wasn't conspiring against the king. And yet, given an opportunity to advance his self-interest, right, resorted. He resorted to the murdering of innocent men, women, and even children in order to get ahead in life. Right? Like that, that's evil. That's a love of evil more than good. Why? Because, because, because of pride. Like, if, if I am what is uppermost in the universe, then I will gladly resort to any means necessary to make sure my worth is known, even if it means massacring an entire family. That's what's going on in Doeg's life. He loved evil more than good because he was 
self-sufficient. He was uppermost in his heart, right? He was one who was worthy of all uh, adulation and, and praise. Now, now, quickly, lest we be tempted here this morning to think, well, that's the, that's the character qualities of, of others, but that's not me. That's not me. Well, let me say something that may shock us. Apart from the grace of God, right, we are all capable of this level of evil. Like our, because uh, you might think, I'm like, I'm not gonna, what are you talking about? I'm not going to massacre a family. I would never do that, right? L- listen, yeah, I agree. In, in our restraint, right, our restraint and rejection of this level of evil is not because we have on our own arrived at some superior level of morality over others. It's God's grace. Listen to Romans chapter 3. Apostle Paul writes and says, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are, listen, swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. Now, Romans 3, those verses right there, was written as as Paul's response to the Jewish people asking Paul if they were in a better spot morally than the Gentiles. Surely, we are the the chosen people of God. We're in a better spot morally than these Gentiles. And, And Paul writes, no, you're not. Like Jew and Gentile, all human beings are under the enslavement of sin and left to ourselves Apart from God's intervening grace in humanity, Romans 3 describes where every human being would find themselves. Right? The human heart is sinful. Your heart, right, apart from God, is broken and flawed and depraved and deceitful. I don't think a lot of times we really grasp, I know I don't, just how depraved I actually really am and in need of God's grace as I really am. And as wicked of an act that that Doeg committed, what what drove it was his love of self, his love for evil because it advanced his name in the world. Now again, I don't believe anybody here is going to commit mass murder to advance your career path, right? But but won't we be tempted, and aren't we tempted to, to use people, to take advantage of people, to speak poorly of people in order to advance our reputation? I know I've been guilty of that. Don't we oftentimes not totally mind if someone else's reputation and character takes a hit if it kind of means that ours is a little bit advanced? Like, well, I'm seeing a little bit better because look what that person did, right? Like, I, like we're tempted in those regards as well. And so this is sometimes we see even in our heart this love for, for evil, that needs to be confessed and repented of and, and acknowledged and seen. So, so you, have, you have this pride in the person's heart. You have this love for evil. But the third way in which we see this picture of evil described in these first four verses is through destructive words. Destructive words, right? Notice throughout those first four verses the destructive nature of words, right? Verse two, your tongue, it, it plots destruction. It's like a sharp razor. Verse three, you love lying more than speaking what is right. Verse four, you love words that devour, O oh, deceitful tongue. 
I mean, we can say all day long, sticks and stones may break our bones, but words will never hurt us. But that's not true, right? That's not true. Words matter. How we speak matters. Words, words will always do one of two things. They will either be building up or they will be tearing down, right? There is no neutrality with words. They're doing one of those two things always, right? This picture of evil in Doeg's life of the destructive words hits, maybe hits a little bit closer to home, right? Like we can get on board with the first two, right? We, we can agree, we agree here. Okay, as a Christ follower, we're not to be prideful. We're not to be self-absorbed. We understand that. We, we get that, right? We, we understand that we must not love evil. We need to love what is good and right. That's, those, are, those are easy concepts to understand, but, but how we speak hits a little bit closer to where we live. And, and we don't typically think of destructive words maybe on the same level as evil. But man, Scripture sure does. Scripture sure elevates and, and, and equates destructive words with, with that of an evil heart. Listen to James chapter 3. James says, The tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. Listen, it is a restless evil, he says, full of deadly poison. Do, do you see your words in that way as something that can, can really uplift or can really tear down? Like my, my wife can, through just words, can build me up or just with a few words could, I mean, she could decimate me, right? Like that, that, those matter that much. So like husbands and wives in here this morning, do you see how uplifting your words can be to each other, but also how devastating they can be, right? If there's conflict in the home, right? If there's an argument between the, the two of you, don't we know if like you really want to win, right? Like if you're like, ah, I'm up against the ropes here, right? Like it looks like he or she's going to get that fine. Like, don't you, you have that one like in reserve, right? Though I know I could say this and, and this would just, errat, it would just crush her or crush him, right? Why? Because we, we understand words, they matter. Parents, how do you speak to your children? Employers in here, how do you speak to those that are under your authority? Employees, how do you speak to others about your employer? How do we speak with people, brothers and sisters within our church body, our church family, our, our words spoken to, to build up or they meant to tear down? How do we speak to or about your, your neighbors? How do we speak to those with whom we disagree with? Right, what, what about social media, right? If social media has done anything, it's revealed kind of the essence of the human heart, right? Because it, it, it's, it's hard to sit down. I mean, it, it's hard for me and hard for most people. Not everybody struggles with this, but it's hard to sit down and talk face-to-face -face with someone and speak destructive words. But, but you know what, man? If I can just sit in the comfort of my, my home and just type something and just kind of throw it out there and then never have to deal with the person, never have to deal and see them face-to-face, uh, -face, never have to really acknowledge or see them as a human being made in the image of God, 
well, then I'm, kind of, I'm just free to kind of really just shh, let that out. See, words matter. They reveal our hearts and, and really whether or not we are loving and pursuing God or loving and pursuing evil, right? So, so this is a picture of, of evil. I want to spend the majority of our time on, on that part. The last two we're going to move quicker through. The last two pictures. The second picture is a picture of justice. It's a picture of justice. And we see that in verses 5 through 7. See, David, in, in these verses, turns his attention from, from the actions of Doeg to the just nature of God. So we see this all throughout the psalm, right? So, so when faced with reality, we see this all throughout the psalms, I, what I mean is, is that when, when the, the authors are, are faced with reality, right, the brokenness of this world, the brokenness of, of their own lives, when, we, when they come face-to-face with evil, face-to-face with suffering, face-to-face with discouragement and with betrayal, with, with their own shortcomings and, and failures, what, what, what we see throughout the psalms is them acknowledging it and, and turning to the character of God, right? So it's not escaping it. It's not, it's not trying to justify it. It's, it's acknowledging it and then saying, okay, where's my hope? That's what we see throughout the Psalms, and that's what we see David doing right here. He's come face to face with evil, and David responds with a righteous anger that looks to a God of justice. David doesn't look to himself as, okay, I'm now the avenger. I'm the avenger of Ahimelech. He's not the savior, he, he, he knows this, and that's why these verses look to God. Look at verse 5, right? But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. What we take away from this is that ultimately evil will not prevail. We should, as Christians, find great hope in that. Like in, in life, we're going to see a lot of times wicked prospering. We're going to see those who do good demeaned and persecuted. Like, like that's, that's a world that's upside down. That's why Jesus came and, and taught like a countercultural way of living of his followers, like a different kingdom. Because in this world, things are not as they should be, right? So the wicked are going to sometimes prosper. The good are going to uh, sometimes be killed or persecuted or oppressed. Ahimelech, uh, right here, he did what was right. He, he spoke truthfully before the king and still lost his life and his whole family. Doeg, in this moment, probably most likely saw his status increase for a while before the king. Right? We're not always going to see justice maybe on this side of, of heaven. However, the hope found in Scripture is that regardless of circumstances in this world, God will not let anything go unpunished. He deals with it all. Evil will not win. Do, and, and Doeg's foretold destruction is a picture of, of all who reject God and instead look to themselves for joy and security. Right? The, the words used in verse 5, break down or snatch and tear, right? uproot, these, these are words, these are verbs used to describe eternal punishment, to describe judgment from a holy God. It's a picture of justice. God's response to wickedness is perfect and right and consistent. And, and so as God acts, verses 6 through 7, again, then give a picture of hope to us who hope in God, right? That their response is, is to look to a God's satisfying justice. Like herein lies the hope in which we rest, that those who belong to God, those who are his children, will, will see God's right response. They'll see his justice, and they'll rejoice in a God who always do, does what is right, 
It's not a mockery over those who are being judged by a holy God. It's, it's a rejoicing in a God who is doing what's right. And that's really the final picture the psalm paints for us, is this picture of eternal hope. Verse 8 is, is really a callback to the very first psalm, Psalm 1. In Psalm 1, you, you get a prism for kind of how to read the rest of the Psalter, right? And so, so you read in the first few verses of Psalm 1 that blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and, and on his law he's meditating day and night. And this says this, that, that the, the man and woman that does this, he's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. In all that he does, he, he prospers. That's what we see in the first three verses of the first psalm. See, Psalm 1 describes the rest of the Psalter, that for those who hope in God, find their joy and satisfaction in him, will flourish. David here doesn't look to be the avenger. He doesn't look to be anyone's savior. No, he, he sees injustice and he plants himself firmly in the character and nature of God. And because of this, he flourishes. Verse 8, but I am like a, a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. Though David had been abused, though David had been mistreated, though uh, Abiathar's whole family had been, been, been destroyed, though they witnessed grave injustice, David here through the psalm settles his heart in the love of God, and there he remains. Our temptation, as we close here, is to attempt to be, to be mankind's savior, Right? And it, it doesn't mean that, that, that we, we don't seek to push back against injustice and to speak for those who cannot speak for themselves and to love and to care for the marginalized and the abused and to welcome them. Right? The church should be the, leading the charge on, and be on the front lines. And, and where, where she fails, there should be acknowledgement and repentance. But, but we must also recognize that we are not humanity's savior. Right? That, that is not our ultimate mission to save the world. Our ultimate mission as the people of God is, is not to make life in this world more comfortable and friendly for everyone. It's to proclaim where deep abiding joy and comfort comes from amidst suffering. And that it's found in Jesus Christ. We, we want to seek the, the end of suffering and, and injustice. Yes, and, and, and amen to all that. But, but we also need to recognize that that's not coming until the return. We're not going to eradicate it all, so we're not trying to just make life more comfortable. We're trying to point people to the reality of a Savior and where they can find rest even as they suffer, right? We're not a people that are seeking to push just a certain standard of morality. Live this way. Do this. Don't do that. No, we're a gospel people, and wherever the gospel is proclaimed and takes root in the hearts of man, injustice is corrected. We've seen that historically through the life of the church. Right? The, the abolishment of the slave trade was led by, by men who had been uh, changed and transformed and saved by, by God's grace, and they saw an injustice and a great evil, and they, they spent their lives fighting against that. Right? Where the gospel takes root in the hearts of man, injustice is corrected. So we must first and foremost be a gospel-centered people. And, and, and like I said, when the gospel takes roots in our hearts and transforms us, we, in response, seek the transformation of the community, the welfare of others. At the same time, we also recognize until the return of Jesus, there will be suffering and injustice in this world. Yet our hope remains steadfast in a steadfast God who will deal with all wickedness, like I said at the beginning, in one of two ways. 
It will either result in man's condemnation and judgment from a holy God in an eternal hell, or wickedness will be atoned for through the person of Jesus Christ. So, so all injustice, all wickedness, all sin of which we are all guilty will not go unpunished. Either we personally will bear the weight of God's holy wrath or through repentance and faith in Christ, we look to him who bore the weight of sin, who bore the wrath on the cross of a holy God for our betrayal. See, David had faith in God. His hope was in him, and therefore he knew his sins were paid for. He knew God would not let injustice and wickedness ultimately go unpunished. And so it's why he could say at the very end, verse 9, that I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name for it is good in the presence of the godly. Here's the heart of someone whose, whose heart is captivated by God. They praise him for his mighty works. They, they trust in him for their future, right? Like, so he's witnessing what Doeg just committed, and he's saying, I wait upon the Lord. I trust you. I trust you. Even, if I, even though I want to act, even though I want to fix, man, I'm trusting you. And, and, and then they're bearing witness. He's bearing witness of the goodness of God before others. May, may we wait upon the Lord as David did, trusting in his goodness, wrapped up in his love, and proclaiming his sufficiency. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning um, asking for that, that very thing to take root in our hearts. God, we, we recognize David was not a, a perfect human being. He was flawed. He was broken. He was a sinner. And yet we also recognize the hope to which he rested and the hope to which we need to look to. And that is in you. Uh, too often, I, I know my own heart is, is prone to uh, want to be the fixer. Right? Want to fix everything. Think I can make everything right. That if people would just submit to my thinking and my way of doing things, and then there'd be no issues in, in, in the world. But, but God, for, for me and for all of us that maybe wrestle with that mentality, may we confess that as, as the exaltation of, of, of man, the exaltation of self, thinking we are humanity's savior. No, I am just as depraved. I am just as wicked. Um, left to myself, I would be uh, long gone from you. But it's your, been your grace who has pursued me, has pursued us, has drawn us. You've given us who believe and have faith in you new hearts. You've made us a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. God, all of this is from you. And so, God, as we engage and, and walk through a difficult world where we're going to face injustice, we're going to see injustice, we're going to see wickedness, it's going to be perpetrated against others, it's going to be perpetrated against us. We may at times even be the perpetrators, God, in all these things there needs to be confession and repentance and faith and, and trusting in you. And as we go from this place as sent people, we go, again, not thinking we're the Savior, but pointing to the Savior. So help us, help us to rest in this, to believe this and to sing of this and to proclaim it for your glory and for our joy. We pray it all in Christ's name.